1: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed.
1: In our day-to-day life, especially on a beautiful day, it's hard to believe there's anything wrong. Yet the signs are all around us.
0: That's David Suzuki back in 1989.
1: The warnings are clear. And they exist right now, not 50 years down the road. But it is going to take a drastic change in the way we live to even begin to tackle something like global warming.
0: Nearly 35 years ago, he hosted a radio series called It's a Matter of Survival, which addressed the climate crisis head on. It struck a nerve across the country. CBC received more than 14,000 letters, more than any radio or TV series to date, from listeners wanting to know what they could do to help curb climate change.
1: The warnings are coming fast and furious, and we had better listen. Because what is at stake is how we will survive and if we will survive on this earth. And more important, we had better listen because we are the cause of the problem. There's no time left to debate about whether there is a crisis or how bad it will be, or how long it will take.
0: Now in 2023, Canada is experiencing the worst forest fires in recorded history. And in the next 10 to 15 years, the planet's temperature will have increased by 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre industrial levels. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also predicts that the Arctic will become ice-free by the end of this century. Over the course of the summer, we'll be featuring episodes from David Suzuki's Radio Archive. We're calling it Suzuki's Survival Guide, A Retrospective. Hello and welcome, David Suzuki. Nice to have you with us.
2: Hi, great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: So our, our listeners, of course, will mostly recognize you from your TV career, as I do with, with the nature of things. but. Over your career, you've had a soft spot for radio. Why is that?
1: Well, I
2: love radio. It's, uh, for me, it's a much more natural way of communicating. The thing I love about radio is we don't have to worry about visuals. We use everybody, every listener's brain, and I can construct the most incredible scenarios and everybody creates it in their own brain.
0: Well, welcome back to radio, at least for the summer.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: At the start, at the very start of your 1989 series called It's a Matter of Survival, you you say that when it comes to climate change, the warnings are coming fast and furious and that, quote, what is at stake is how we will survive and if we will survive on this earth. You also say there's no time left to debate about whether there is a crisis or how bad it will be or how long it will take. That was Almost thirty-five years ago, wow! And we're hearing wow. the same message now, still in twenty twenty-three. Yeah. What's it yeah. like for you, looking back and and recognizing that the message has been consistent and all the more urgent, and yet persistent?
2: I guess the thing that really bothers me—we've just uh, published a book called *The Petroleum Papers* by Jeff Dembecki, and what blew me away is that Edward Teller, you know, the father of the hydrogen bomb, one of the the really great physicists in the past, in 1959, Edward Teller told the American Petroleum Institute, which is the American counterpart of CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, all the big, big uh, fossil fuel uh, companies belong to this. And he told them in 1959, if that Burning fossil fuels is creating uh, greenhouse gases that will warm the planet. And if we continue on the trajectory in 1959, that by the year 2000, it could be catastrophic. So the fossil fuel industry has known. We've known about the impact of greenhouse gases since the 1800s, for heaven's sake. This is not a a new area like genetics. This is an old area. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the science has been in all this time. But to me, the thing that makes me angry is that the fossil fuel industry knew the impact of their product. And they had ample warning to, be, to uh, begin a transition to or a different way of using fossil fuels. But the name of profit trumped everything. That's the, the tragedy. And, you know, as a biologist, I, look, I think of our species in uh, really the evolutionary context. And all of the indications now clearly show that humans evolved um, in the great grasslands of Africa hundred and fifty to 200,000 years ago. And when you try to imagine what the Great Plains were like, 150,000 years ago, they were filled with animals in abundance and diversity beyond anything you, you would uh, see today on the Serengeti. And, you know, if we were transported back in a time machine and looked down, we'd have to look really hard to find those clumps of three, four or five of those two-legged furless apes. And that was us. And you got to admit, holy cow, we weren't very impressive. We weren't very big. There weren't many of us. We weren't fast or strong, or we didn't have special senses. Uh, You know, I'm sure the other animals, when we walked by, didn't hug their children and say, shh, don't get them angry. They're going to (laughs) take over the planet. I mean, what the hell did we have going for us? And of course, the answer was that one and a half kilogram organ buried deep in our skulls. It was the human brain that was really the key to our enormous success. And foresight was our great advantage over all of the other animals on the planet. We have a sense of a future as no other creatures do. We have the capacity to affect the future by what we do in the present. Look ahead see where the dangers lie, see where the opportunities are, and then act accordingly. That's been our great advantage that got us to where we are now. And for over 50 years, the leading scientists of the planet, armed with supercomputers, have been acting in the best tradition of our species, looking ahead, seeing where we are in great danger seeing where huge opportunities lie by taking the right path. And for over 50 years, we've been turning our backs on the survival strategy of our species because profit, because of the, uh, the you know, we, we have people who are elected to lead us and they can't even tell us the truth, that we're in a crisis, that we have an emergency and that we have to pull out all stops.
0: But is there, I'm just curious if, the, if you know, if you think there's a fundamental, like you say, we have the capacity, we have the foresight. Is there a fundamental flaw in the human species that makes us incapable of action on such a large scale?
2: No, I think that it's got, well, the planet has been so abundant that we've been able to act uh, without without thought uh, about the the. Global consequences of what we're doing. We're still basically a, a tribal animal. You know, we think locally, but I think the big problem now is we're we, we're too smart for our own good. We have created institutions and systems to manage the way we interact with each other and our transactions and so on. We have um, uh, an economy. We have political structures. They're all based on the notion of our supremacy. We are now in charge of everything. And nature, the foundation of our lives, nature has no place in the systems we've constructed. You know, I tell people, uh, politicians uh, and economists, what is the most important thing every human being on the planet needs? And very few of them will give you an answer that any child would give you in a minute. They go, oh, well, uh," they're thinking jobs, money, the economy. I say, Mr. Economist, if you don't have air for four minutes, you're dead. If you breathe polluted air, you're sick. So sure, you know, and humans don't make clean air. We receive it as a sacred gift from nature. Don't we have a responsibility? And that's what's missing in all of this. We think we can go out and do whatever we want. And, oh, uh, mm, we've got a problem. We've got to clear that up later. But there's no sense of responsibility for receiving the air, the water that recycles over and over across the planet, the food that we eat from the soil.
0: So let's talk about that sense of responsibility. Just Let's just harken back to your series in 1989, where you interviewed all kinds of all kinds of people uh, who were featured in that series. One of them was, was a, uh, well, there were several political heavyweights, including Environment Minister Lucien Bouchard back then, who was Minister under Mulroney's Conservative government. And at the time, he said, if we don't move away from fossil fuels, we're creating a disaster scenario for the survival of our species. That kind of language, as you say, seems pretty extreme now coming from a politician How do you maintain any sense of hope given the absence of that kind of messaging from our leadership?
2: Well, you know, uh, Bouchard, was. it is incredible to listen to him today. You go, oh my God, is he ever radical? But he nailed it. And, uh, you know, Brian Mulroney presided over the first big international meeting about the atmosphere in 1988 when he was reelected. He opened the, the conference. They had, they had cabinet members from over 40 countries in the world, 300 delegates. Climatologist Jim Hansen was there. Stephen Lewis chaired the sessions. Uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland from the prime minister of Norway gave the keynote address. The delegates were so alarmed at the threat of climate change that at the end of the conference, the press release said, we we are performing an experiment with the planet, our home, and called for a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. If we had done it, if we had taken that warning seriously, as Bouchard was saying as well, we wouldn't have the problem we have today. We could have done it and politics intervened
0: where do you find any sense of hope today given all of this
2: well um my hope is and i've been shocked at how generous the planet has been i'm just amazed that earth mother earth has been so generous she has absorbed what is far beyond the carrying capacity uh, of the planet my hope is the change is coming and it's being driven now by the reality that no, nobody pays attention to people like me, but Mother Earth is hammering you. You know, whether Danielle uh, Smith, the pre- new premier of Alberta, wants to or not, the, her, Mother Earth is telling her her province is on fire. And if you uh, want to deal with this, you're going to have to and when you look at the local grassroots level all kinds of things are happening but we need leadership at the big level at the provincial level at the at the federal level to make big decisions and that's not happening
0: so looking back over your career and in this retrospective specifically of your radio work we we have a few episodes that that capture you know your long standing delight in the natural world it includes an interview with marine biologist Sylvia Earle describing the wonders of life under the sea. How important is it for us to connect with that sense of wonder?
2: Well, I think without that, one doesn't really understand that how fundamentally connected we are. And I'm glad you raised that. You know, Sylvia has been a champion all her life. She's been unbelievable. And yet the oceans have been degraded uh, steadily. And... Uh, if we don't have a sense of wonder we don't have that spiritual uh connection and i think that that's what's needed we need to elevate nature above us we think we're so goddamned important we're at the heart of everything and when you you know you you have people like elon musk and uh, uh, jeff bezos you know very successful in the economy but basically they've given up on the planet they want to go to mars or or somewhere else i mean what how ludicrous to think that we're so important. We've got to keep the species going by escaping uh, our home, Mother Earth. Without that sense of uh, uh, wonder, we don't have a sense of obligation or responsibility. This is why for the past 40 years, I've been so indebted to indigenous people who have shown me so much who have taught me, you know, the seven generation perspective, you think not only on seven generations of your ancestors, but ahead on seven generations of, uh, uh, to come of your people, of, of the trees, seven generations of the trees, that's long-term thinking that is needed in, in, uh, our actions today, you know, and during the COVID lockdown, this is one of the great, uh, gifts that I got. I happened to be at my cabin Locked down with my youngest daughter and her husband and and three young children uh for six months of total isolation and every mor- I had the morning shift I was up at six every morning. The kids came in like clockwork at quarter to seven, and I dressed them, fed them, and every morning, rain or shine, out we went. And, you know, an old timer like me, I look out and I go, oh, God, the oceans are a mess. And Look at where they've clear cut that patch over there. The kids don't know that. Every time, you know, you wouldn't believe what happened when I I found a salamander. You'd think I'd won a Nobel (laughs) Prize. You know, when we caught frogs and collected frog's eggs. The world still is wonderful. It's amazing. And they gave me the great gift of seeing the world through the eyes of a child. And it is still wondrous. And it only made me more determined to continue to do uh, what I've been doing and saying, look, we've got to change. We've got to protect something for our children and grandchildren.
0: Well, what do you hope listeners will gain from this retrospective of your radio work?
2: Well, I'm just astounded, and I'm grateful to you and uh, and Nikola Lukšić for for rerunning these programs. And what it shows, I think, is that the warnings have been there, and we've run out of time. We've got no excuse now, and we need radical change, and we need to simply call an emergency. This is now an emergency. Look what we did with COVID. You know, I've spent years and years going to Ottawa, begging for a few million dollars to support Indigenous people, to support uh, public transit. And every time we go, it's, oh God, that's too expensive. We can't afford it. COVID comes and suddenly not tens of millions, but tens of billions start being spent without any calls about, oh, my God, these irresponsible politicians. It was an emergency, and we had to respond to it as an emergency. Well, please, to the listeners, we are in a crisis now, and we have to act. David Suzuki, you're now retired from the nature of things at the age
0: of 87. What are you doing with the rest of your life?
2: I haven't retired. I've just changed jobs. I'm spending as much time as I can now with my grandchildren who are the greatest gift I've ever received and uh, seeing the world through their eyes and being activated by the, the the need to say things and try to get people to act to protect the future for our children and grandchildren. So they are my... Uh, They are my magic fuel that keeps me going, and uh, they are the joy of my life.
0: And we're just joyful you joined us. Thank you so much, David.
2: Thank you, but thank you so much for uh, rebroadcasting these shows.
0: It's our pleasure, and I think our audience will agree. Thanks a lot. We're starting a retrospective of David Suzuki's radio archive with the first episode of his series, It's a Matter of Survival, from 1989.
1: Listen carefully, because this is the world our children may inherit.
3: in Canada. I have an emergency request on behalf of the New Zealand government. Please, anyone listening. They're desperately in need of antibiotics. Desperately in need of antibiotics. Millions are sick in refugee camps here. Camps bursting with refugees from flooded South Pacific islands. Repeat, millions sick in refugee camps. Please contact the Red Cross if you receive this message. Auckland, New Zealand, calling Canada. Auckland, New Zealand, calling Canada.
4: I'm Jody Jacobson. I'm a senior researcher at World Watch Institute in Washington, DC. In the 1980s and, and the 1990s, when I was very quite young, um, I remember that the whole issue of global warming was quite controversial. and. Uh, there was a, a great deal of debate between policymakers and scientists on how far we should go, given the relative scarcity of data and the uncertainties involved with global warming and sea level rise and and the whole issue of how atmospheric gases were changing the earth 's uh, temperature and its climate and I realize now, sitting here and looking back in two thousand thirty nine that um, we were foolish not to act. We continued on the path that we had taken of burning fossil fuels. We didn't move quickly enough to renewable energy or really improve energy efficiency quick, quick enough. And I think if we had known then what we knew now, which of course is never the case, we would have moved more quickly to try and prevent some of this global warming from taking effect.
1: I'm David Suzuki, as far-fetched as it may seem now in 1989, that may be the real world in only 50 years. In our day-to-day life, especially on a beautiful day, it's hard to believe there's anything wrong. Yet the signs are all around us. A mysterious hole that has appeared in the ozone layer, oil spills, thousands of seals dying in the North Sea, the burning Amazon rainforest, last summer's drought. NASA scientist James Hansen told the American Senate a year ago that global warming has already started. The warnings are coming fast and furious, and we had better listen. Because what is at stake is how we will survive and if we will survive on this Earth. And more important, we had better listen because we are the cause of the problem. There's no time left to debate about whether there is a crisis or how bad it will be, or how long it will take. Dr. Stephen Schneider is an expert on climate change.
5: I just finished writing a book, and uh, the title to this is Global Warming, and the dedication was to my kids. And I said I only hope that they're more ingenious in figuring out how to adapt to the greenhouse century than we were in preventing it.
1: Dr. Steven Schneider believes that the so-called greenhouse effect is not only with us, but has been building since the Industrial Revolution.
5: What we know in 1989 about heat trapping a property of gases, we already knew in 1889. We know that carbon dioxide and other gases can let sunlight through more easily and trap infrared heat near the surface, and this is not controversial that's what led to the famous expression the greenhouse effect this by the way is not a scientifically controversial proposition but as well validated by literally billions of observations from space and then hundreds and thousands of aircraft measurements and so forth so we know that the heat trapping properties of the atmosphere Uh, keep our surface warm and in fact make this planet habitable. We also know that we've increased uh, an important greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, by 25% since the Industrial Revolution. Another very important gas, methane, we've doubled since the Industrial Revolution. And then we've added chlorofluorocarbons, which never existed before people came along. And if you take all of these gases plus some others together, it adds up to about one degree worth of warming that we should have had uh, since the Industrial Revolution. Well, we know we've had about half that so far. There's a big debate over whether that's uh, uh, an overestimate on the part of our science or whether there are other factors going on. And quite simply, that debate isn't going to be resolved for about 10 to 20 years, more data. The Problem is, to resolve that debate means performing the experiment on a certain laboratory named Earth with us and other living things in the cage. So we already know enough to know that heat trapping properties of gases are there that gases are increasing and that we're going to heat the planet how to translate that into how many degrees of temperature one or five or ten whether it's 2039 2089 or uh, or 2139, we don't know. Whether it's uh, wetter in the uh, east coast of North America and drier in the interior or wetter in Asia and what that does to sea levels, these are areas that are much more debated than the idea of change. But the other thing that we know, and I think virtually for sure, is that there's much better than an even betting odds chance that by 2039 the world will be in a climatic regime that's unprecedented in the era of civilization. That means more than say two degrees Celsius warmer than it was during the average of the past several thousand years. And uh, that rate of change is what has most of us concerned. It isn't just the magnitude. Nature changes the climate, you know, a degree in a millennium uh, from time to time, five degrees over five to 10 millennia, because the ice age is about five degrees colder than the present. And in about five to 10,000 years, the ice age warmed us up by five degrees C. On average, it warmed up more like 10 or 20 in Canada, and the, the mile high ice sheet disappeared. But the, uh, the point is that the forests moved literally thousands of kilometers in response to this. The sea levels rose 100 meters, species went extinct, others evolved. It revamped the ecological face of the planet, took 10,000 years to do it with 5 degrees. Now, what are we talking about? The low end of what humans are talking about is 1 degree warming over the next century. The high end is 5 to 10. So we're looking at changes that are degrees per century, whereas the natural rates are degrees at most per millennium. So we're at least 10 times faster. And in the scary worst case scenarios, such as our 2039 one, uh, those rates are more like 100 times faster than nature. And it would be sheer arrogance for any scientist to tell you that they understand the distribution of effects that are going to occur, how diseases will change, the stresses on ecosystems, sea levels, effects on crops, uh, forest fires, all of these areas, water resources are going to be impacted. And the more rapidly the climate changes, the less easy it will be for us to adapt because as adaptable as we are, we need time to know what's happening. And for nature, it's impossible. Simply things will go extinct in place unless we start becoming ecological engineers and transplanting them with who knows what consequences.
0: You're listening to Ideas and to the first of our special series we're calling Suzuki's Survival Guide, A Retrospective. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. Back in 1989, David Suzuki hosted a radio series called It's a Matter of Survival. Nearly 35 years later, it's clear how shockingly prescient it was. This episode of Ideas features excerpts from the very first episode of It's a Matter of Survival.
4: I'm Jody Jacobson. I'm a senior researcher at World Watch Institute in Washington, D.C. One of the core factors in in displacing people around the world has historically been and continues to be land degradation. And with global warming underway and things getting hotter and land drying out, we're seeing not only the displacement of people in tr- once traditional areas of famine and, and desertification like Africa, but also on the Great Plains of the United States areas that we once considered the breadbasket of our, of our world. We've also seen an increase in environmental refugees due to natural disasters because, as I mentioned with the increase in storm surges in the Miami area, the changing weather patterns has not only increased the likelihood of things like drought and storm surge, but also um, has increased their severity.
6: I'm Joel B. Smith. I work at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in the Office of Policy Analysis. Fisheries have been significantly affected. Ocean fisheries have migrated uh, northward due to the higher temperatures, and people are trying to make adjustments, either getting, either just traveling farther in fishing boats just to catch the fish they were used to catching or trying to change their dietary habits to keep up uh, with the rate of change. Inland fisheries have been uh, in some cases, more problematic because the fish can't migrate on their own, uh, say, from one lake to another. And uh, people have been trying to respond with uh, restocking fish and moving in the northern areas. But they're, of course, running into problems in terms of what, what do you put where, in the sense they're almost playing God and trying to figure out uh, what are the new ecosystems going to be like. The biggest problem here is that it's not that the climate, having warmed, has now stopped warming, and then it's just a matter of us catching up and adapting. The problem is that it it keeps warming and because people did not take actions in the past to slow down emissions of greenhouse gases and because we're continuing to burn fossil fuels and cut down whatever forests are remaining and using chlorofluorocarbons the rate of warming just keeps going getting faster and faster and it's uh it's hard enough for natural systems to keep up with a rate of warming of even uh, one or two degrees a century. It's now becoming very difficult for man, which is one of the most adaptable, flexible creatures on the planet, to keep up with the rate of warming that we're seeing, and it's only going to become harder.
1: The warnings are clear, and they exist right now, not 50 years down the road. But it is going to take a drastic change in the way we live to even begin to tackle something like global warming. The excess carbon dioxide that is causing the warming comes from our cars and industry. Last year's Global Atmosphere Conference in Toronto aimed at a 20% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by the year 2004. Yet some scientists claim that we would have to cut carbon dioxide emissions totally to prevent the nightmare world of 2039. Groups like the World Watch Institute say we have less than 10 years to turn things around. Is it all too much for us? Dr. Stephen Schneider.
5: A lot of people say, aren't there mechanisms in the system that could make you guys wrong? I mean, you're predicting three degrees warming in 50 years. How do you know it isn't going to be one? And indeed it might. In fact, I was talking with the U.S. State Department Undersecretary uh, last year about the need for international uh, international taxes on fuels and so forth and he said well wait a minute that's a pretty serious step i mean you guys could be wrong i mean couldn't there be a buffer couldn't more water evaporate make more clouds more clouds are brighter and that reflects away sun and so-called negative feedback and i said you're right and he said, gee, you're pretty easy. I thought you were going to be a tough guy to debate with. I said, well, now, please tell me, what is the probability that this buffer is going to be out there? And he was a little unsure about that. I said, you think it's one chance in 10? Or how about one in three? He said, okay, I'll take one in three. I said, I'll do better than that. I'll give you one in two. I'll give you a 50% chance that that we've overestimated it by a factor of two or three. It's about the most we could and he said okay i said good then you've got to give me a 50 percent chance that either we're right or we've underestimated by a factor of two or three because clouds don't just get wider which cools the planet they can get taller which warms the planet or if you warm the planet there's organic matter in the soil which through microbial action, speeds up when it gets warmer. And then there's all this methane sitting under the tundra and off the continental shelves and off the slopes off Canada that can get dumped in. So we've got feedbacks, both positive and negative, unknown. And the bottom line is that we're insulting the environment faster than we know what we're doing. So I said to the official, if you don't want to act, what you're really doing is taking a coin and writing one face on it which says, Unprecedented climate change in the middle of the 21st century and flipping it because that's the gamble that we're facing.
7: Another example of the human tragedy involved here. My name is Randy Hayes. I'm the director of the Rainforest Action Network, which is an international environmental organization based in San Francisco, California. Back in 1989, we worked our tails off to alert people. Of course, if I were back there now, I would do it differently. But thinking back, we did virtually everything that we could, but it wasn't enough. We wanted more people to get involved. Uh, We called out to the governments. We called out to the corporations. We called out to citizens to rise up and take charge of the situation. We told people that if we left the environment in the hands of environmental groups, or in the hands of politicians, we were in trouble. That if we couldn't revitalize the sort of grassroots, amateur, impassioned activist movement that began to surface even further back in the 60s and early 70s, then we probably wouldn't stand a chance. 50 years ago, when I flew over the Amazon, you could see the front line of destruction. You could see where the commercial logging, the cattle ranching, the slash and burn agriculture was burning down the forest. But beyond that you could still see a sea of green that dense canopy you know with emerging flowers and and uh, all kinds of wildlife flittering through the canopy and now you don't have that kind of canopy you don't have a climax rainforest you don't have a primeval ancient biologically diverse old growth forest what you have is a, a pine tree plantation
1: I'm David Suzuki. It's really not surprising to hear people in 2039 talk about the loss of the rainforests. Right now, an area of tropical rainforests the size of a football field disappears every second. That's a 100 acres a minute, an area the size of the Maritimes, every year. And extinction goes hand-in-hand with rainforest destruction. Edward O. Wilson is a Harvard biologist who has spent a lifetime studying animals in tropical rainforests. By the most conservative estimates, uh, we
8: figure that uh, they are disappearing at the rate somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 times faster than occurred before humanity came along and started cutting the forest. And that is translatable into, I would say, minimally 20,000
1: species a year going extinct. It seems to me that the great survival trait of our species has been the ability to think of a future and realize that we, by having a future, have options. We can determine the kind of future we go to by choosing among a number of options. Uh, The great ability of the brain, though, today in the 20th century seems blind to the destructive path that we're on. Why is it that on the one hand you can say we can continue to extract essentially indefinitely if we go one way and we destroy forever if we go another way? Why can't we see that and do something about it? The
8: short-sightedness and self destructiveness of uh, our species, I think, is rooted in our basic human nature, which adapts us for short-term solutions. Human beings in most parts of the world, until historical times, have been able to move on, either through swidden agriculture, in which they cut away a little bit of the forest, plant some crops, and then when that starts to wear down and nutrients move on to another part of the forest, or as an area becomes uninhabitable, like portions of the Middle East and Central America, when the populations grow too dense and the resources are utilized too much, the populations have always been able to move on. And that has been the general history of humanity, but we're up against the wall now. We really do have too many people. We've got 5.1 billion. We're heading for 11 billion equilibrium according to World Bank estimates and uh, the world just can't take that number without our really producing the kinds of effects that are now becoming apparent uh, the global environmental changes in warming and ozone depletion toxic pollution and finally in the destruction of the major habitats containing most of the biological wealth of the world. I think the reason, then, that we are in trouble is that we are built to be short-term thinkers and short-term survivalists, and we'd better change that. If we could say that the world is going to get too warm to be comfortably sustainable, that the species are all going to become extinct in 10,000 years, then we wouldn't worry. I don't think I would worry. But we're talking now, not 10,000 or even 1,000, we're talking decades. And we're talking about a process, especially in species extinction, which is totally irreversible, that's occurring right now and will cause immense damage during the next several decades. It's been said around in scientific circles that there are two aspects of global environmental change on which almost everybody's agreed one of them is the inevitability of global warming due to the greenhouse effect if we continue our present course and the other is the ongoing process and inevitability of large magnitude of species extinctions if we go on destroying these environments so we have to start learning to think in somewhat longer time frames if we care about our descendants and increasingly our own lives. And we have to start thinking globally because what happens in the Amazon now, what happens on Madagascar, is increasingly going to have a direct effect on what happens to us uh, right here in North America. The imagery I like to use in describing what we are doing, particularly with the destruction of natural habitats, allowing it to occur, especially in the tropics, is that we are burning
1: Renaissance masterpieces in order to cook dinner. What we're doing is crazy. We're destroying this planet, and we're not even thinking about our children in the process. You know, it's becoming more and more difficult to draw a line between the present and the almost unimaginable future we've been talking about. Everything in that future world of 2039 is beginning to happen now yet we don't seem to recognize the signs are we hoping against hope that scientists are overestimating or
5: exaggerating
1: what lies ahead for us dr
5: steven schneider there is a good you know even betting odds that we could be overestimating it there's an equal odds that we could be underestimating it and that to me is the scary part so with that kind of prospect we now ask what's worse facing the future where we could have the possibility of unprecedented change without doing anything about it, or making some investments now to slow it down with the possibility that those investments might very well not be as needed if it turns out that we've overestimated it. Given that there's lots of uncertainty, especially about the detailed distribution of where it's wetter and drier and so forth, not so much over the magnitude and rate of change, that's what we know best, but about exactly how it manifests itself, uh, that means that it's hard to know exactly how to adapt. So the message to that to me is do those things that slow down the rate of change, thereby buying ourselves time to study, buying ourselves time to adapt, and buying nature time to adapt more slowly. In other words, don't try to press it much faster than natural rates are. And do those things which not only buy time, but which helped to solve other problems. Should this whole uh, heat-trapping business turn out to be, if you'll pardon me, an infrared herring, who cares? We won't have wasted our money. And. The obvious set of candidates just jumps right up in front of us. Use energy more efficiently. Don't lock in inefficient power plants in China, which is going to, A, cost them more money over 50 years, and B, pollute the world more. Put in a 50% efficient power plant now instead of a 30% efficient power plant. Uh, Retool industrial machinery to be of the new modern variety. Uh, Get the uh, mileage standards in cars improved. Uh, Cut out the fluorocarbons. Every time we do those things, not only do we reduce the, probability of catastrophic climate change, we reduce acid rain, which would help the relations between the U.S. and Canada, or Scandinavia and Germany, uh, or the Soviets and everybody else around the Arctic. It also reduces the health risks of air pollution in cities. It reduces the dependence on foreign supplies of energy. So there are four or five good reasons to invest in a strategic policy of energy efficiency, and of which climate change insurance is only one. So it seems to me those are the areas we concentrate on. And in my value system, we know more than enough to state with full responsibility that there's a better than even money odds of unprecedented change that we can slow down. And that to me is what a prudent society does, especially when you can get lots of other dividends for your money.
6: I'm John Last. As I look around this world of 2039 and look back to my youth in 1989, I am filled with sadness that the messages some of us tried to convey about the
9: urgent need to change our ways went unheeded. And I guess we need to go back. We need to go back to 1989 and say all of this you take for granted will change will change in your lifetimes certainly your children's in ways that will devastate the dreams you had for your family and for your children Uh, what might we have done because there was time in 1989 there was a strong environmental movement but perhaps not strong enough that was trying to raise the alarm
1: You know what's what's happening, as you've said over and over again, is without precedent. What has happened, though, for 99.9 percent of human history, nothing seemed to happen. All of a sudden, now everything is happening, and and it's it's uh, it's happening within our lifetimes now. What's happened?
5: I think the root cause of global change is threefold. There are three things that work together. The first one is technology. We're using technologies that are cheap and abundant like coal or oil and gas. And we've had no price on the environmental degradation they cause. The second factor is affluence. Everybody wants more. Well, if you want more wealth, you use technology to get it. And if the technologies that you use are the cheapest ones that pollute and there's no charge for pollution, that's what people do. And the third factor is population. So what we have now as this century comes to an end is the confluence of an era of cheap fuels, a political system that doesn't charge the costs of environmental pollution because it's so-called externalized into the global commons, what the economists call it, and, uh, and a world that's very reluctant to want to say no to population growth because somehow that's cultural imperialism. Well, we can't have it both ways. We can't have unbridled wealth, unbridled use of cheap technology, and... Lots and lots of people all using this stuff without feeding back on ourselves and putting a footprint on this planet so heavy that it's going to start making the very quality of life for which we use technology and affluence worse than it was. So the key then is how do we get smart? And to get smart in my value system is we become more efficient and we help provide resources to the populist countries so that they can get an increasing share of the pie, but they don't use The cheapest most polluting technologies but the much more efficient and modern ones that are out there because those pollution uh effluents that they're going to put up there are going to not only affect them but they're going to affect us so to me there's good news in the uh in the greenhouse effect and the good news is it it's scary enough in at least 50 percent odds level that it might push us to do what we should have been doing all along which is to make development of the planet our number one priority. The The new buzzword is sustainable development. And I really believe that. And what that means is that we need to make the investments that are going to help bring down population growth rates in third world countries, help improve energy efficiency here, and see to it that whatever kind of technology is locked in, for, say, the next 50 years in the developing countries, it's the least polluting and Best kind of technology. And if that costs a little more capital up front, so be it. It's going to cost a lot of money to raise the sea levels, move the grain belts around, and change disease vectors. We're in an economic and an ethical issue right now. We've got time to avert substantial damage, but we can't do much if we don't move fast.
1: I'm David Suzuki.
5: There's an Indian saying before making
1: an important decision, reflect back on seven generations of our ancestors and ahead on seven generations of our children. We haven't been thinking at all, beyond immediate profit or convenience. We've got to stop this madness. Is it so difficult to realize that we live in a finite world? That we can't continue to use our very life-support systems, the air, the water, the soil, as our garbage can? What really terrifies me is the idea that we somehow as a species have a blind spot, that we can't recognize the potentially lethal warnings all around us. Psychologist Robert Ornstein is author of the book New World, New Mind, a book that suggests we do have a fatal flaw.
3: There's an old story among biologists. It's called the boiled frog syndrome. A frog will sit without complaining in a a pot of water And in Fahrenheit, it can be increased from 100 degrees to 150 to 160 to 170 to 180. Nothing happens. The frog doesn't do anything differently. Nothing changes. It goes up to 190 to 200. But finally, at 212, there's a state change. The water boils and the frog dies. Uh, The reason that this is, I think, an important example for our future is that we have been slowly, in some cases literally with the greenhouse effect, in some cases figuratively heating up the water around us. Those people who have been sounding warnings about what we are doing are people who would be listened to just as the frog would listen to someone as the temperature from the water increases from 160 to 175. If the frog could talk, he would say, there's no difference. It's slightly warmer in here, but I'm just as well off. If you say, if you keep increasing it at that rate, you will die. The frog will say, we have been increasing it for a long time and I haven't died. So what? This is why our future is so unprecedented. This is why many of the warnings that many people, even as recent as 20 years ago on Earth Day, have, have uh, made are beginning to be recognized. It's basically that we do have a fairly sophisticated set of detection apparatuses all around the world to detect changes in CO2, changes that affect the greenhouse effect. We have many other ways to look at increasing population. We have many other ways to deal with the increasing effect of technology. But somebody has to say and to demonstrate that our situation is like the frog. It is time we stopped increasing the heat, and it's time we started to cool off in in human terms and time we started to change. What is the flaw in the frog? The flaw in the frog is that he has never been in a situation where he was in boiled water. It doesn't happen in nature. So he has no built-in innate mechanism for getting out of it. So he doesn't need to avoid it, just as we don't need to in our natural state learn to deal with the consequences of a billion and a half people dying in 30 minutes and yet many of the things we're talking about now would are beyond inconceivable whole cities poisoning their children as mexico city is doing um cities reaching a point of of violence and despair is clearly something that humanity was never designed to deal with but it is up to us to redo that design and to redo it very very quickly
1: Next week on It's a Matter of Survival, what will it take to prevent this future? Thanks to ham operators Bruce Roney, Roy Stokes, Roman Zarnick, Munir Nahas and Jack Kinch. Production assistant Steve Payne. Field producers Lynn Glazier and Chris Groskerth of the program Sunday Morning. Writers Anita Gordon and David Suzuki. Technician Larry Morey. Producer, Penny Park. Executive Producer, Anita Gordon.
9: Don't think in 1989, foolish it seems now, that the great crisis that faced our world was nuclear warfare, bad as that is, that the great crisis that faced our world was uh, uh, possible annihilation by something as obvious as a bomb or a gun. What we've done to ourselves we've done with in much less obvious ways by the lifestyle we lived we could have changed that by the directions our political institutions took we could have changed those today in 2039 we live in the world that we made back then in 1989 it was only scenarios it was only projections If only people would have responded to believe the projections, to understand that these are not flights of science fiction or of fantasy. These are serious, sober minded estimates that tell you how the world is going to change.
1: I'm David Suzuki. Please join me next week for It's a Matter of Survival.
0: This is the first episode of our series that we're calling Suzuki Survival Guide, a retrospective. In the next episode from the series, we'll hear from then-Environment Minister Lucien Bouchard.
1: If you want to, uh, to set up real solutions, you have to change our way of life. You have to think about energy, conservation, alternative form of energy. It's, uh, it's just almost a revolution you have to do. And uh, if we don't move now, uh, there will be a disaster. We are dealing with the survival of the species.
0: Special thanks to Kate Zeman of CBC Radio Archives. Series producer, Nikola Lukšić. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas and I'm Nala Ayed.
1: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.